Sometimes in life, skepticism can serve you well. It can save you money, keep you from wasting a day at a timeshare presentation, and help you avoid spreading gossip. To be honest, when I am faced with a new scenario, I usually tend to be a skeptic until something proves me wrong. And if you're like me, you can probably spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from a mile away and read labels like it's your job. That's where ritual comes in. They know that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. Their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Take two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption and you'll get nine key nutrients. Rituals Essential for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. On top of that, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp and made traceable. I take my vitamins every morning with breakfast. It's part of my daily ritual and I feel so good doing it. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash yoga girl. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash yoga girl for 25% off. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. On today's show, the high priestess of creativity is joining us. I am so excited to introduce you to Julia Cameron. Julia is known as the godmother or the high priestess of creativity, and she is for a reason. She started a movement that has brought creativity into the mainstream conversation in the arts, in business, and in everyday life. She's a huge icon who has inspired millions of people, including artists like Alicia Keys, Pete Townsend, Tim Ferriss, and Liz Gilbert. Liz Gilbert actually says that without Julia's book, The Artist's Way, there would be no eat, pray, love. As a best-selling author of more than 40 books, artist, poet, playwright, novelist, filmmaker, composer, and journalist, I don't think there's anything this woman can't do. With her new book, The Listening Path, Julia is on the show today to talk about how deeper, more profound listening can open a true path to creative and personal transformation. As we move deeper into this new year, Julia offers us a beautiful way to navigate times of uncertainty by channeling our inner artist. I am so excited for you to hear this show. She has introduced some beautiful new rituals into my own life, like morning pages. You might have heard of that before and the artist date. I'm so excited to share this with you. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show. I am so happy to to have you on the show. It's 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 been such a joy to read your latest book over the past past week or so. The name of this podcast is From the Heart and I always want to start in that heart-centered place. So just how are you doing right now if you were to speak completely from the heart in this moment? Well, I'm doing well. I live atop a mountain in Santa Fe and I have to be careful uh, about COVID so I don't go out too much. I have a helper, Nick, who's an actor and a poet. 
And he comes to see me every day, and that keeps me from feeling too stir-crazy. And I have a little dog, Lily, who's a Westie, and she just went to the vet and got a clean bill of health. So that's a wonderful thing. Wonderful to hear. How old is she, Lily? Lily is seven. She's seven. Okay. We have a lot of dogs uh, over here. I live in Aruba. We have an animal shelter actually here. So we have 160 dogs in our care right now. And we always have a lot of animals coming and going. Uh-huh. So I really, really enjoyed your latest book. I feel like it, it arrived in my own life in a really serendipitous time. I, I didn't realize until I read your book, but I have been in this very deep practice of, of listening over the past past few months. And I would love to, to, to talk about what inspired you to write an entire book about the art of listening. Well, I began when I moved from New York to Santa Fe. I, New York, as we know, is hectic and noisy and has, is full of sirens and whistles uh, and horns. And when I moved to Santa Fe, I was suddenly struck oh, this is tranquil, this is peaceful, this is deep. I wonder if more people can come to enjoy this. So I started thinking about the place that listening has in our life and the fact that we sometimes tune out unpleasant sounds and that when we do that, we disconnect. And so I thought, well... Let's start talking about tuning in. And that's where it began. And do you think as a, as a society right now, we have too much noise in our lives? I, I struggle sometimes with the contrast or the balance of when life is noisy to just accept that and to sit with the noisiness of that and not resist it versus trying to really arrange my life to be quiet and peaceful. Do you think uh, there's a balance to be found in that? Should we just accept or should we all try to make our lives a little bit more quiet, like move from New York to Santa Fe? I don't want everybody moving from New York to Santa Fe <laughs> because then Santa Fe would become noisy. But I think that we can all do with tuning in a little bit and trying to adjust our lives in the ways that are obvious to us. So what happens with the listening path, the new book, is that the very first week is listening to your environment and tuning in and making a little note to yourself, is this pleasant or unpleasant? And if it's unpleasant, can I change it? And I think that we have a great capacity for change, and that we need to start using it in our own behalf. And the way you, you wrote the book, so you begin with listening to our environment, that, that mindfulness practice of really tuning into everything we hear in a day. And then from there, the next chapter is about listening to others and listening really intently and presently to the people in our lives. Is that a good way to begin I find that a lot of people would love to become better listeners in their relationships and maybe don't have the other practices that you share in the book. They're kind of focused on that second chapter. Do they all connect with each other? 
I think the tools of the book all build one upon another. So the first chapter is listening to your environment. The second chapter, which is the one you're focusing on now, is listening to others. And what I find is that often we don't listen closely. Instead, we're waiting to react and respond. So we, have, we find ourselves interrupting the flow of thought of our others. Uh, so the chapter says, don't interrupt, listen, be patient. And when you do, you'll find that people have surprising things to say. And so I think that it's important to try to tune in to the people we're speaking with, to listen without interrupting. Do scents evoke memories and transport you back to being on the beach during your favorite vacation? I know they do for me. Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil smells like summer or the beach in Aruba, bottled with all natural uplifting notes of mango, mandarin, grapefruit, lime, and cypress. But it's not just about the elevated scent. This body oil is clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and deeply moisturize, leaving skin silky and soft. It delivers that coveted post-vacation glow, like you just returned from a tropical getaway. And right now, you can get 10% off your first order with our code YOGA at OseaMalibu.com. I love Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil. I use it every single day and I have for so many years. It makes me feel silky smooth and just glowing. This body oil is rich but never greasy and clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity. It visibly firms your skin, leaving you more sculpted and toned. No wonder I feel so great after using it. But it gets even better. With Osea, you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Osea's products are clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. They are a women-founded company that has been making seaweed-infused skincare for over 28 years. So bring on summer. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skin and body care at Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code YOGA at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to OseaMalibu.com and use the code YOGA for 10% off. And why do you think that is, that it is so challenging for us to really listen to the other person? Because I see that everywhere, everywhere I look. I, I'm a yoga teacher by, by trade. That's what I do. And we have a practice in my classes that I like to do every single week called sharing, where we actually actively listen to each other. So one person gets a, an uninterrupted space to speak like 10 minutes or so, and the other person just listens. And what I see in my students is that it's unbelievably challenging to not be polite you know, and say, oh, I understand, or to not interrupt, to interject, to, to not do anything. When you researched a book, have you come to find why, why do you think that is, that it is so inherently challenging for us to really listen to someone else? I'm not sure why it's so challenging. I just know that it is so challenging. And I, I think that people are impatient and we believe we know what the other person is going to say. So they start a thought and we interrupt and we finish their thought, but we don't finish it the way that they would have finished it. I think it's an act of ego. And I think 
that it's an act of intrusiveness. And I think that when people listen to each other, they're often shocked at how interesting our conversational partners are. And so I say, listen, don't interrupt. Watch your body language. If you have your arms folded across your chest, you're sending a signal that, that says, I'm not penetrable. If you have your arms relaxed, you're sending a message that says, I'm ready to hear you. And there's a vulnerability at play there, there too, that I think perhaps could have something to do with it. That, And you write that in the book as well, that to, to really listen to the other, we have to be vulnerable. We have to be really open and ready, ready to receive. And in today's world, it's a, it's a rare thing to come across a vulnerable person just in your day-to-day. Well, I think it's not so much a rare thing as it is an unnoticed thing. And I think that when we notice the receptivity of the partner that we're speaking with, we begin to feel like, oh, I never thought of that. And we, we are caught by surprise. So I think that it's a dance My turn, your turn, my turn, your turn. And I think that too often people say, my turn, my turn, my turn. (laughs) (laughs) And we indulge in monologues instead of dialogues. Do you ever spend any time on social media? Or do you have people who manage that that, that part of, of, of life for you? personally. I don't do social media. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> because I, I do a lot of social media. I don't do and... social media. I don't do television. I have a very calm, integrated life where I pay more attention to Lily than I do to current events. Good for you. Good for you. Because it, it struck me while, while reading the book that that me, my turn, my turn, my turn. Social media basically is one long string of people just speaking out into a megaphone, but not really taking the time or having the time to listen, which is why I personally, I enjoy this format of, of, of the podcast so much because it requires people to be really here. And mm-hmm. I think maybe in today's, today's age where we spend, or a lot of the world is spending so much time in the social media space, we become a little less connected to our own ability to actually listen. And we become so used to that short format of my turn to speak. My thought is really important. And we miss out. And it's actually a a dream of mine. I would love to live in Santa Fe with no social media and and no TV and just tend to my dog and be in the mountains. How do you think people who live a more hectic or very connected in this technological age, that kind of life, do you have any advice for how to really develop that calm ability to listen presently, both to others and also to our inner inner voice? Well, the book opens with three tools, and they are all tools of deeper listening. So the first tool is morning pages where people get up and they go to the page and they write whatever occurs to them, good, bad, or indifferent. 
and when they do pages, they become more authentic. They witness themselves. They find themselves saying to themselves, I didn't know I felt that way, and I do. And so pages are an act of witnessing. And the second tool is called an artist's date. And that's a tool of fun. And it's interesting to me that people are willing to do the work of the morning pages, and yet they balk and feel resistance at doing the fun of an artist's date. So the third tool is just walking, walking and listening for insights, intuitions, hunches. I think all three of these tools deepen our capacity to listen. And using these tools, whether you're living in New York or in Santa Fe, deepens your capacity uh, to enjoy life. And I think that's really what we're trying to talk about is how can I have a more meaningful, joyful life? So deepening into morning pages a little bit. So for some of my listeners who maybe haven't heard the concept of morning pages before, I know in the in the writer's world, it's such a famous and well-known practice. How does it work? Can I write anything? Do I write on my computer? Do I write in a journal? Is there structure to it? How, how do I start my morning pages? You start your morning pages first thing out of bed. Jungians tell us we have 45 minutes before our defenses are in place. So we want to catch ourselves at our more vulnerable state. And you write them by hand, not by computer, because computers give us speed and distance, but they don't give us depth and authenticity. And so you write them by hand, and you don't show them to anyone. They're completely private. And they, you write about whatever crosses your mind. So it might be, this is what I like. Ah, this is what I don't like. This is what I want more of. This is what I want less of. I didn't call my sister back. The car has a funny knock in it. I didn't like the way Fred talked to me in the meeting yesterday. So it, it ranges from the, the profound to the petty, and there's no wrong way to do them. All thoughts are welcome. So your hostile thoughts and your depressed thoughts are just as welcome as your joyous and exuberant thoughts. And what happens is that you become authentic and you, you become grounded and you become communicative, because as you become intimate to yourself, you're more able to be intimate with others. So even though you're not showing them your morning pages, the practice of morning pages impacts those around you. Does that explain them? Clear yes, enough? yes, very well. And I love what you say about, about people resonating a lot with the idea of morning pages as it feels like something disciplined. It feels like something that that yes, it sounds like that will that will work and maybe sparkle my creativity and put my thoughts on paper every morning. And then the concept of the artist date, I also found, oh, what's the point of that? I mean, I guess I could 
once a month take myself to do something, but it doesn't feel as, yeah, play for some reason attracts me a little bit less. I have to really tap into a different side of myself to reach for play. It's easier to reach for what feels like work. So tell yeah. us a little bit about the artist date and and what that is. Well, first of all, I, I want to say that when I assign morning pages, it's as if I say, I have a tool. It's a nightmare. <laughs> You'll have to wake up 45 minutes early and work. And people will go, work? Okay, I'll work. And they take immediately to the pages. With the artist state, we have an expression, the play of ideas. But we don't realize that that's actually a prescription, which means play and you'll have ideas. And what happens with, with the artist states is that people are res resistant to frivolity. They're resistant to being festive. And you say to them, it only takes an hour a week. I just want you to do something that enchants or interests you. And people say, I can't think of a goddamn thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my reaction too. What just excites me? What it's 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 really funny and I don't think I'm alone in that is that we reach easier for things that feel like diligence, that feel like discipline, that feel like work. But the concept of play, it's it's foreign to a, to a lot of us. So what are some examples of that? Does it just mean that I I take myself out to dinner? Does it mean I, I, I have a dance party in my living room? What are some examples of an artist date? Well, an artist date is something that you do alone. So you can't have a dance party. <laughs> Solo dance party only. <laughs> Solo dance party, yes. But you do go out to dinner. Yes, that's a good artist date. But you're trying to enchant what you might call your inner youngster. And I think that we're sort of sick of talking about the inner youngster. But I believe that the part of us that creates is youthful and exuberant. So you're trying to enchant your inner eight-year-old. So you say, well, what would you like to do? And maybe the answer is, I want to go to a pet store. I want to go to a pet store where I can pet a bunny. This is one of my favorite artist states, going to the pet store and petting George the bunny. <laughs> and what happens is when you do something that's lighthearted, you begin to realize that the world is not such a dour place. You begin to find yourself saying, oh, maybe it's enjoyable after all. And I think that artist dates give you a chance to experience what you might want to call a benevolent something. And sometimes people call it God. Sometimes people call it the muse. Sometimes people call it the force. It doesn't matter what you call it. But as you do your artist dates, you'll have an experience of it. And that experience is something that carries over to the rest of your work week. It's as if taking an hour to play 
gives you permission to work harder. And does it mean that it's usually in the artist date that that we are more open to, to moments of big inspiration? Or is it kind of like fertilizing your your inner your inner artist just to 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 stay tuned all throughout? Or is are you in the pet store with George the Bunny getting your next idea for your next book? That could be true. <laughs> But I think that an artist date ideally is something which triggers your imagination. And so I often tell people, go to a children's bookstore, read a book that says all about reptiles, <laughs> all about big cats, all about choo-choo trains. And what I tell them is the information contained in a children's book is just about the right amount of information to start your artist humming. I think it's important to say that when we make a piece of art, we're drawing from an inner well. And it's important to replenish the well. And that's what an artist state does. You're restocking images. You're putting images into the well so that when you go to make art the next time, you have plenty of images to catch. Beautiful. I'm, I'm going to start... I'm going to start doing that. I I have a, an almost four-year-old and I'm good at taking her to her, you know, her inner child. She is a child, but getting really imaginative around what's something fun that you would just like to do right now. And oftentimes it is something a little bit out of the ordinary. You know, it's not just going to the movies or go to the zoo or go to the Tivoli or, you know, something like that. But yeah, going to the grocery store is a really joyful thing for her. She loves doing that. And I'm going to start asking my own inner child what, what she would like, because I don't do that as often. I'm more in that adult space of how do I get my day done versus how can I play? Well, I think, tell me a little bit about yoga. Isn't it necessary to have a great deal of discipline to do it? It is. The, the, it is fairly disciplined. And I try to teach a little bit more of a free-flowing, open style of yoga. I, in every class, I give at least 10 minutes of just expression where no one has to listen to me or do as I say and just do what their body wants to do. But overall, yoga is a fairly disciplined, structured practice. Yes. I think introducing play into that, it sounds like you you have 10 minutes of freeform festivity that people who have been listening to you quite intently can sort of rebelliously flail around. <laughs> yes. And sometimes, sometimes I'll, I'll tell people to step off their mats and they, they act as if I told them, you know, there's a bomb in the room. It's just a <gasps> step off my yoga mat and venture out into the space. We never do that in yoga. You know, yoga is everything happens in the same way every day. And actually now that, now that, now that you, you, you speak of it in my teacher trainings, I'll have at least one practice where we use these little yoga cards of all the, the, the animal poses like cow pose and cat pose and frog pose where everyone gets to channel their inner child and make animal noises and move around the room and pretend as if they are four years old. And it's usually my favorite, my favorite class to teach because it brings us into this different place. How lovely, how lovely. And what about walking? 
because I know I know I'm going to have a lot of people listening to this podcast who are going to ask this question. I just started running and I talk on the podcast last few weeks. We've spoken a bit about running. Does it have to be a walk to nourish that inner creativity or can it also be a run? Well, I think when you run, you're distracted. You're you're putting one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, in front of the other. And you're being faithful to the practice. When you walk, you meander. You put one foot in front of the other, in front of the other. And it tunes you into your environment. So I think running tunes you into yourself. Walking tunes you into the world around you. Do you agree with that? Yeah. And it's also less disciplined. I, I sense that same discipline in running. You have to get to the end. Whereas when you're walking, you don't really have to be, you don't have to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. There's more space. Yes. Yes. One part of the, of, the, of the book or the one that I feel is resonating the absolute most with me is the chapter on listening to our higher selves or listening to that still small voice inside. Could you share a little bit about that? I know a lot of our listeners are meditators. And is there a, is there a difference between meditating and actually listening for that inner guidance from within? Or are they one and the same thing? They can be one and the same thing. They aren't necessarily one and the same thing. I think uh, when we listen to our higher self, we're listening for an intuitive thought or feeling. And I tell people to do it on the page, right? Can I hear about X and pose an issue and then listen and see what comes back? And what I have found is that people are much wiser than they think. And people are in the habit of going to other people for advice. And what I'm saying to them is, no, go to yourself for advice. Try to go to yourself for advice. And so what I do is I assign a, a, a written cue. Can I hear about X? And then I say, now listen and write down what you hear. And very often what you hear is something that's more simple and more direct and valuable. I think that people are hungry for self-trust and that all the tools of the listening path are about authenticity and self-trusting. Did you find that when you read that? Yeah. I think we're very conditioned to not self-trust, you know, that we constantly have to go to other people for help or ask the world for, for advice. Or that's what a lot of us do. We have a problem and we look around and we go, okay, who's the wisest person I know or who could give me advice? Mm -hmm. And we ask. But sometimes the more we ask, I think the... Or I guess the more voices you have telling you what to do or giving you different variations of advice, the harder it is to hear that inner voice that maybe really is the knowing, the knowing voice. And that's why I say write. You know, when you connect your pen to the page, you're connecting to a higher source. I think writing 
tunes you in. And I think it brings you to a, a place of inner wisdom. And I think that it's important. It's important to try writing and try listening and not to discount your own wisdom. So when you have a, a big problem that you're pondering to just come to the page and literally write, you know, I don't know how I'm going to deal with my with this situation or please tell me. And then you just listen and you write down what comes. Yes. And very often it's very powerful. I went through a period where I was beating myself up emotionally because I still loved my first husband and I've been divorced 40 years. <laughs> and I thought, Julia, surely you should be over it by now. <laughs> How codependent are you? I took it to guidance and I said, what should I do about still loving X? The guidance came back, just love him. And I said, but it's been a awfully long time. And the guidance came back, love is eternal. Uh, and so I, instead of fighting with myself that I had those feelings anymore, uh, I just accepted them. And I, I think that's a good example of how writing for guidance brings you simplicity and clarity. Thank you for that. Just love him. Yeah. Sometimes my <laughs> my husband tells me quite often when I when I ask him for advice or I ask people for advice, every time he says, it doesn't matter what I say because you're going to do what you want to do anyway. That oftentimes I'll bounce my thoughts with other people, but at the end of the day, I already know. And sometimes that that process of asking around and listening outward it sort of is the process that takes me to what I already know that I want to do. And I'm thinking maybe this practice of, of skipping all the bouncing around for advice and just sitting with myself and asking myself directly could be a better direct line to that, to that higher self. Well, I think it does work. <laughs> it sounds like it does. All right. I would love to, to ask you a little bit about creativity and the creative process. So I've you are known as the, the high priestess of creativity. I saw read in a, in a few articles. That's a fairly big title. Is creativity, is it, is it a spiritual path? I think very much so. I find if you work on your creativity, your spirituality increases. And if you work on your spirituality, your creativity increases. So they go very much hand in glove. And I, I think, you know, people will sometimes say to me, well, Julia, how do you get to be so wise? <laughs> and I say, oh, it's because I make art and listen. So for someone who isn't, oftentimes I think we relate creativity to, to doing something that involves creativity for work. Right. So if you are a writer or a singer or a painter, but for everyday kind of non-artist people or people who don't consider themselves artists, maybe accountants or waitresses or, you know, bankers, people working in, in what we call non-creative or maybe that don't fall under the creative umbrella. How can stepping into a higher place in your creativity help everybody flourish? Well, 
I think what you're talking about is actually a spiritual awakening. And I think that as you work on your creativity, you wake up to the idea of a benevolent force overlooking the universe. And it gives you faith. And you feel like, oh, I'm afraid to try something. But then your morning pages say, try it. <laughs> you think, I can't try it. Uh, and then they say, do try it. And you go, oh, all right, I will try it. And the I will try it often brings us great success. I will try it. Yeah, so listening to basically taking your own advice then or listening to what your morning pages tell you, tell you every day. What about perfectionism as a as an obstacle to creativity? I, I find that in myself often when I have the idea of I'm not good at something, so I shouldn't do that. So a painting, for instance, or anything that, that involves, you know, my hands, I have this idea that I am not good at that, that is not for me, so I don't do it. Is, is perfection or the idea of perfectionism, is that a big obstacle for, for creativity? And how can we move past that? Perfectionism is a huge obstacle for creativity. Uh, and when I teach, I say, let's number from one to 10. All right, here we go. If I didn't have to do it perfectly, I'd try. If I didn't have to do it perfectly, I'd try. If I didn't have to do it perfectly, I'd try. And you go so on up to 10. And what you find uh, is that you have not allowed yourself to be a beginner. And what I think the obstacle to creativity is, is the idea that if we do something, we better damn well be good at it. We don't give ourselves practice shots. I think that as we learn to say, I'm willing to do this even if I do it badly, that helps to dismantle perfectionism. And I also think it's important to say that when you write morning pages, you will hear from your inner critic. You'll be writing along and your critic will say, this is boring. And you say to your critic, thank you for sharing. <laughs> and you keep right on writing. And what that does is train your critic that you can step past it. So when you are dealing with something where you don't want to do it because you can't do it perfectly, you train your critic to say, okay, I'll stand back and let you just try. Thank you for sharing. And then you keep going. Yes. This, is a, this is a really big one for me. I and mean, I think about that as a practice. If I, if I didn't have to worry about doing it perfectly, what would I try? There's a long list of things. You mm -hmm. know, the idea of failure, the idea of of failing at something, even if it's something that, you know, you're not supposed to get an A at the end of it, even if it's something that's just for pleasure or just for fun. If I'm not good at it, I, it's easier for me not to try. But then when I think of the things that I really, that bring me so much joy, that bring me so much life, there was a point in my life where I had never tried those things either. 
you know, where I told myself, oh, I can't do that. You know, who am I to speak in front of a group of people? And I still have that idea. Oh, I can't do public speaking. I'm not good at it, but I'm a yoga teacher and I do it every day, you know, so that inner critic, that piece of advice is beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And then. <laughs> well, I named my critic. I, I've had the same critic since I was 18 years old. And the critic is named Nigel. <laughs> so you and say, thank you, Nigel. <laughs> I think of Nigel as being a gay British interior decorator with very high standards so that nothing I do is ever good enough for Nigel. Uh, and I will be writing a book and Nigel will start saying, you've said this before. This has been done before. And you say, Nigel, thank you for sharing. Uh, and you keep right on writing. So we should, we could name our inner critics and give them a bit of a persona. Yes. To make them easier to manage. If you name your critic cartoon character, it, it moves the critic from being a looming, horrifying something, a terrifying truth teller, into being like a negative relative who always has something nasty to say at family picnics. A little closer to home. <laughs> we can all relate. We can all relate. In the, the, the last chapter of your book is about listening to silence. And I would love to hear a little bit about, about your practice of listening to silence. Do you have that as a daily practice? Is it part of, of a meditation or a Zen or a Buddhist practice of some sort? Or is it something that you incorporate in your day to day? All right. I would say I listen to silence at the end of my morning pages. I write my morning pages. They, they may be full of chat. And at the end of my morning pages, I sit quiet uh, and listen for what wells up. So I think the practice of morning pages is a good practice to prepare you for silence. And I think sometimes at night, I will go over my day and I'll sit quietly and I'll say, well, what could I have done better, if anything? And I listen, and in the silence, I get guidance. So I think I don't have a sitting meditation practice. I use my morning pages as my meditation. And I, I think that they're a little different from normal meditation. I think if you're pursuing normal meditation, you might have an issue and you take it into meditation, and at the end of 20 minutes, you don't feel you need to do a thing about it. You've meditated it away. But with morning pages, if you have an issue, 20 minutes later, when you're finishing your pages, you hear, well, I damn well better do something about it. <laughs> uh, and they move you into action. And I, I like this as a I feel for a lot of people, just the idea of meditation can feel very daunting versus listening to silence, whether that's at the end of morning pages or after having put your, your, your children to sleep or closing the car door. I always have that moment when I'm getting in the car and I close the door and suddenly everything is a little more quiet where I just take a breath. 
I, I think a lot of people will find that that approach of listening to silence when it arrives is a little more approachable, perhaps, compared to a one hour a day meditation practice or 20 minutes twice a day or however, however people choose to do it. I think you're right that what the, the chapter is, is saying, just try two minutes. You only need a little bit of time in silence in order to feel a, a great uh, upsurge in clarity. I had a friend, uh, it's in the book, who resisted silence. He said, I'm terrified of silence. I keep my television going. I keep my radio going. I take my devices with me when I run. And I said, well, just try two minutes. And he said, oh, I'm scared. <laughs> But he said, can I call you back at the end of two minutes and tell you what happened? And I said, yes, that would be a good thing to do. So he turned off all of his devices and sat in silence for two minutes. And then he rang me back up uh, and said, I got an idea in my silence of what to do next. And I said, well, that sounds like insight. <laughs> He said, well, maybe I'll try this silence business again. <laughs> And did he, is he now, uh, is he less, less afraid of silence now? I think so. Oh, yeah. I had an insight. Isn't that, it's, 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 I think, true for, for a lot of us, that those big moments of insight, they usually don't happen mid-conversation. They don't happen with the TV on, you know, not watching the news that we realize the next big thing in our lives. But cultivating more and more of that space, I think, is, is a good, good thing to do. So, Julia, at the end of every podcast episode, I like to ask my guests the same thing. So for everybody listening right now to this show, if there's something that, that we could do to be of service to you today, what would that be? Oh, you could stick me in the prayer pot. I have a book launch coming up. And so far, the book is number one on Amazon, which is thrilling. But I have to do a virtual book tour going on Zoom and appearing before audiences that I can't see and hoping to be able to connect to them. So I would ask you to stick me in the prayer pot for inspiration for the next month. That would be a wonderful thing. Thank you. Oh, we will all do that. Thank you so much. And if this is a, a sign of how your future Zoom virtual book tour is going to go, you're going to be just, just fine. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and a huge thanks to my amazing guest, Julia Cameron. Be sure to get her book, The Listening Path. It's available all places books are sold. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you listen and subscribe to other great episodes of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. You can find all of our episodes on yogagirl.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you normally get your shows. Don't forget to leave a review while you are there. Thanks to everyone at Cadence 13 for their production work. I'll see you next week.